This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Paul Sullivan is the founder and CEO of Bias Digital, a multi-award winning inbound marketing agency. Paul has one of the most fascinating and unusual backgrounds of any agency leader I've come across. He's worked with some of the biggest investment banks in the world, JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, just go down the list. He was a member of Mensa from primary school. He was a former Apprentice contestant and was listed as the most irritable contestant on the show ever. One of the few people ever to speak truth to power and tell Alan Sugar actually where to go. He tells a hilarious story of the boardroom interaction that he had with Alan Sugar when he talks back to him and was subsequently fired. Um, If you are interested in anything to do with fintechs, financial services, inbound marketing, the blockchain, social mobility. He was from the East End of London, where expectations for kids have been and are currently still low. Um, And he doesn't want that cycle to continue because he knows how smart and capable people are from those sorts of backgrounds. So he has a training company that works with former prisoners to get them back into the workplace, just absolutely fascinating the work that he's doing i found the conversation fascinating i know you will as well so without me keeping you in suspense any further my conversation with paul sullivan paul sullivan is the founder and ceo of bias digital a triple award-winning business marketing sales and training consultancy They help their clients with inbound marketing, sales enablement, and training. He has over 12 years senior management and consulting experience within financial services at tier one banks and brokers, coupled with over a decade's experience in marketing and business development within the financial services, technology, and property industries. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Paul Sullivan, welcome to Agency Deal Masters. Hi, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm really well, and I'm super excited to speak to you, actually. Thank you for coming to our event a couple of weeks ago. Super excited to to see you there. Your your background is just absolutely fascinating. You've, you've worked at pretty much all of the biggest financial institutions and banks in the world. JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, Citibank. Just go down the list. So why did you, how did you go from the world of banking and corporate finance into running an inbound marketing agency? Um, the, uh, for me, this transaction, uh, sorry, this transition has been quite seamless. Um, what happened was I um, was doing some work. Well, it wasn't work. It was like a summer job at mm. a broker's whilst I was at sixth form studying my A-levels. And whilst I was at this broker's, I got a call from a recruitment consultant asking me, um, to go, do I want to go and interview at JP Morgan? Now, I knew who the big players were anyway, so uh, most certainly, yes, I do. Um, and I, I will never forget this guy. His name was Martin Fenton. He mm. was to become my manager. So I'm sitting in JP and I'm having my interview and he blatantly turns around and says to me, look, you are certainly not the sort of person we usually hire. We are usually grad-led. It's always grads. But there's something about you that I like. And as you're temping at these other brokers, I want you to come in here for sort of two months and I'll know by then whether or not you are going to um, make the grade or not. And if you if you do, then I will teach you everything that I, I You're I joking know. me. Yeah, that's what he said. 16 um, years old. 
17, 18, I think. Wow. Oh, 17, yeah, 17. What an and, opportunity. Um, what did he see in you? I think it was just, like, I'm just super keen. I'm super hungry. Um, I've got some sort of academic things behind me that make me sort of stand out a little we'll talk bit. About, we'll talk about that a bit later. Yeah. Um, and, but also, I, I've just demonstrated a good, good, good knowledge. And I think what people forget is that most of what we want is people to be keen and eager, right? That that conversation um, just goes to define how I now approach my own business. Mm. You can train anyone to do anything despite their academic results, right? Despite whether they can spell, despite whether um, you know they're dyslexic or whatever, whatever these problems you, these people might have, or they only done GCSEs, for example. Mm. Find something you see in someone, mm. right? And then say, can I? nurture that and can i teach them to do marketing because i'll tell you something the 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 interns that i've had this year they've really really made me question what is going on in universities hmm. when you know there's no problem solving ability um they there's no communi real communication despite training upon hours and hours they then still can't articulate what you've even taught them um and, I, and i'm not saying this from one experience i had three Three interns, all very similar. One of them, the very first one, great, high performing, and then all of a sudden turned around and said that she thought that she was worth about sixty pound an hour, which, um, all right. you know, yeah. So that one was an easy fix. Sure. Um, but the other two, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get it. And yeah. you know, I, I had my nephew working for me when he was around sixteen. He was always into creative. You know, he's a, he's a designer by by trade, I suppose. And I taught him how to do inbound marketing. He was coming into the agency. He was doing some stuff around WordPress and, mm. and some logo design and all of this stuff. And then, it, you know, even when it got to his point, I just said, look, it's time for you to go and you need to just go and work with some other agencies. He made a couple of mistakes. And, you know, as a family situation, you can't really, I couldn't really berate him for them. Um, and for other agencies, he probably could have got himself in a bit of trouble. He it was to do with some design and he overlaid something and on the print run it all came out and some stuff like that. But now he's gone out and he's he's actually able to articulate a proper strategy. He can talk it through from an inbound perspective. Mm. He then questions what senior managers are asking him to do. Really or, interesting. Yeah, because he's got this ability to just say, well, just because you're a manager and you're yeah. saying doesn't mean you're right. Right. He doesn't have that and fear of sort of leaders or sort of people in high senior positions which is which is really interesting and we'll come back to that a little bit later in the show because a lot of these people that you work with the interns come from disadvantaged backgrounds but you don't see their disadvantaged background as a hindrance to their future their success um and you've turned some uh, a lot of people's careers around and you're doing some really interesting things so we'll come back to that a little bit later okay. but sure. but but just on your I, c I just can't get over all of these amazing uh, uh, financial institutions yeah. so I mean, from my point of view, it almost seems as though you were there, you were at Merrill Lynch and Deutsche Bank, Citibank for a long time, and you were almost like, well, I need to go and work for an industry that's values-led and purpose-led. I know, I'll go and work with marketing, in the marketing industry. Is that, was that the it, thought? Something like that. Right, okay, interesting. Yeah, I, think I detracted from the question you asked me. I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> Sorry. Effectively, what happened was, the first, <clears throat> the first sort of six weeks I was at JP, mm. um, we used to do this interbank reconciliation and it was so awful and tedious. Um, as a bank, they have three different entities and I think there's tax benefits for them trading in and out of those three different um, located businesses. 
But we had to do the reconciliation between all the accounts. And after about two weeks of doing this, I said to myself, wow, we've got two different systems here, both producing a set of numbers. And we sometimes get reams of paper and there's four or five of us doing this. Mm. Turned around to my boss, I said, can't we automate this? Can we not just like get one system to talk to another system? And then if there are any breaks, it produces a report that tells us what account and what the amount of the break is. And if there isn't, then there's just no report. And if he just looked at me as if to say, why has no one ever thought of this before? <laughs> and then we got that done. Um, and that saved about 54 man hours a week hmm. between four or five people. Which uh, I'm which, sure to well, them is like hundreds yeah, of thousands of pounds. Of course, it's millions probably. Mm. But um, then I was so focused on how do I use technology to solve hmm. problems, right? And if you think about what marketing automation is, hmm. Actually, what I started to find was I was really, really bad when you asked me to sit still and sit there and just process. And most banking jobs are processing. So I started to concentrate on where can I still find more of these opportunities? And I kept saying to the banks, look, I want to go and work in Change the Bank, which is probably the early adoption of fintech. How can I use tech to solve problems and so on and so forth? But with all their legacy systems that they have, mm. that's another story. And they just kept saying no. So I was like, okay, I'm really getting bored of your no. Um, and, you know, throughout my, throughout my career, you know, I, I mean, one time we were at Merrill Lynch and you brought that up and I was doing this age reconciliation and I found a bank owed them half a million somewhere and that, that actually went my way because they were then renegotiating with the bank. And I've just always been driven to succeed, to be better than everyone else and not to, I was never worried about bank politics, which is probably one of the big reasons why I mm. came out. Um, I'm not, I'm not, it's not, I'm not political in terms of my own beliefs, but I don't see anyone as being better than anyone else. So I literally would have all the, the boys from the post room around my cubicle on a Monday morning talking about the football. And then 10 minutes later, I'd be in my director's office talking about clothing and suits and what sure, we were going to do. Sure. Corporate bank um, policy. Right. Yeah. And I just was like, but that's probably people. because you're really very smart. I mean, at primary school, you were in Mensa, which yep. I mean, to be in Mensa, you need to have a very high IQ. Right. Yep. So you have to be in the top 80, 98th percentile or higher for IQ or sort of other approved intelligence tests. Yeah. When did you realize that you were smarter than the rest of us? Um. I don't know if I actually realized I was smarter than the rest of them, but when I was in primary school, and, I, and I've gotten, because you know, parents, they love to keep all this stuff to embarrass us. Mm. My mum got a report from the teacher, um, and then, so I was born in 77, so you're talking sort of 1980. The teacher wrote in my report, you need to buy your son a computer. He's mm. just far too intelligent for the rest of the class, and we're holding him back. Um, and then this is when Mensa started coming to the school and literally every single Wednesday they would come in. And I would do like an hour or two of uh, maths equations and spelling and all of this stuff. And that went on right up until I was about seven or eight when we then moved. And, you know, not to talk about any particular type of school, but I moved from a very public school. And by that, I just mean it was just a state school, it wasn't any sort of church denomination faith or anything like that, to a denomination faith school. And they just put the kibosh on it. They said, look, um, we're not having it. No one gets treated any different. You know, there's, that's it. This is this is what we teach and that's how we're doing it. Which then calls my old head teacher to come to the new school. And there was literally a blazing row in the hallway. With, like, well, my mum there, I'm standing there. 
And she was like, why are you doing this? You don't understand what you're doing. Like, he's got so much opportunity. You should be fostering this. And then um, two years later, I walked into secondary school and sort of what they call year seven now. And I was already doing my GCSE maths. Mm. Like, just to the point where I remember one of my friends saying to me, I, you really get on my nerves because you mess about in class. Mm. And as soon as the teacher asks you a question, you just turn around and answer it, hate which annoys people. teachers as well. I hate those people. Yeah. I, I, I always hate those people in school. There's one and, guy in particular called Richard Bayer. Just yeah. Anyway, sorry. And then, I digress. So one of the one of the one of the qualities that I say that I have is like multitasking, which they say generally men are not good at. Mm. Like I'm extremely good at, mm. and I can talk and have a conversation and listen to another conversation going on. And I always say to people, when it looks like I'm not listening, please don't think that I'm not listening because I am. I'm always paying attention. But I think bigger than that, coming from sort of a very disadvantaged part of London, East London um, at the time, you know, it wasn't, people like me weren't the norm. And so I was considered hard work. So, so for a funny story, um, when I was in nursery, and, and, and this is one of the ones that sticks, um, I used to, you know, when they sit all the children down, they want to read the book, mm. teacher is. I used to want to read the book. That's how ahead of everyone else I was. <laughs> and if they didn't, I used to start crying and stomp and go and hide in the corner wow. until I literally got my own way because I wasn't interested in listening to them because my mum used to sit there and make me read all of the time. But not not really children's books because my mum my and dad were both avid readers. I kept trying to read very more adult books. Mm. Um, and I was into um, education. I always had like a book about animals or something in my hand. So when did you first realise that you were that your brain operated slightly differently to the rest of the kids of your age? Um, I think probably when I was about four, when you couldn't get a screwdriver out of my hand. So anything you gave me, I tried to take apart and put back together. So that's that's what I was like as a kid. I, it wasn't to break it. Hmm. I used to literally take it apart and then try to fix it back together all of the time. Hmm. Um, so I started to realise I was different because I just... I just wasn't like everyone else. So I, I was boyish. I played sports. I was a good footballer, you know, boxing, all these stuff that boys do. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was just, I was just, was just interested in different things. When they were interested in sort of action man and stuff, there'd be like a, you know, it'd rain and all the snails would come out and I'd want to identify what the snails were. I just was into this stuff. And, you know, I tried to get my school to join the WWF, yeah. the World Wildlife Fund yeah. when I was there. And, I just was interested. Your, your brain things. just operated differently. You, yeah. you, were, you, you, you were also on the Apprentice. Obviously, this is fast forwarding a, a few years. You were also yeah. on the Apprentice. You kept that really quiet when I met you as well. Um, you've got so many amazing things in your background. Tell us what that experience was like. So I think first thing I'd say is um, being honest. In two thousand sort of fifteen. I, I, my agency had grown to about six people at the time mm. and um, two or three people left really quickly. Um, the graphic designer went, you know, went to the top graphic design school, got, got his masters and all that stuff. And then just one day he said, I'm going to teach drums and be a sous chef. I mean, how do you deal with something like that? I even offered him, I said, look, do you want to work from home? Um, one of the problems was he said from Brighton to Croydon or somewhere there, it was really quick. But from Croydon to Hackney, sometimes was double the time it took for him just to do that journey. And so that was what was grating on him. He just didn't, you know, we were located in London Fields in a right trendy industrial style office space. Um, 
And whilst he liked the office space, he just didn't want to do the journey anymore. And I can't blame him, but, you know, I didn't want to lose him. And straight away, I said, look, if you want to work from home, you can come up like maybe once or twice a week, but the rest of the time, just work from home. You do really good work. I really like working with you. You understand it. We've got a good rapport. But no, Richard didn't want to do that. Then Liam, who was working for us as an account manager, I went and got a job uh, in a company that provided oils for perfumes. And, but this happened so quick and we had all this work on and then I went through all these problems where you're trying to outsource and bring freelancers in and it just got so worse. And then I decided, what am I going to do here? Because I put 30K of my own money in to start it up, um, which wasn't, it's not a problem, but obviously I'm looking to recoup that money. I'm not looking to just keep investing right. and quite randomly having like one of my conversations with one of my friends, I was like... I should just go on The Apprentice. I'd win that easily. <laughs> okay. And, um, and he said, yeah, you should. And, <laughs> and so, you know, after the club one night, I go home. And... By the way, everyone that's been on the show, I'm sure has thought that at some point. Has thought, because no one goes on the show and thinks, I can't win this. Everyone, I'm sure everyone goes on the show thinking, I can win The Apprentice. Yeah, but there's, there's two things that went on. So I okay. said I could win it, but then said that I didn't want to win it. I wanted it to come second. I actually didn't want to work with that. You want, you didn't want to, why not? No, because I don't need someone to tell me what to do. I just needed someone's influence. And, and that's not what he's looking for. He's not looking to help you by influencing other things to help you do what you wanted to do. Um, because I quite, I'll talk quite openly about what, what my, 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 what my pitch was. Right. So I had an agency. We've been working with FinTech and finance for a long time. And so the plan was look, invest some more money into the agency and let's start an accelerator program and start building our own, um, our own, our own pipeline of businesses, you know, this whole inbound approach to business. If you get someone early stage enough, you know, obviously having revenues, but you can start um, an accelerator for people that have hit like a mill in revenue. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of tie to a certain size business and then you all of a sudden you've got your own pipeline developing. Right. And obviously you could have set up to maybe take the shareholding in those companies. So the business model was to grow exponentially quick. Um, Sounds like a great proposition. How, how, yeah. how did he respond? Um, well, I never got to speak to him about it, did I? Because I, um, I was uh, fired two weeks before the final fire. Um, Why did you get fired? Because apparently I'm the only one to speak to Alan Sugar as I did ever from all of the Apprentice shows. Okay. <laughs> How did um, you speak to him? I think I think they probably would have said I was abrupt and dismissive of him would probably be dismissive. Interesting. Yeah, because. I basically was a team leader and we did some uh, event at Madame Tussauds and Jessica Cunningham, basically her and Sofiane, between the two of them, they were like two of the strongest salespeople. Um, And this is my fault looking back now, but they were two of the strongest salespeople and I put them on the sales team and I went off to do the strategy. And then somehow between leaving with a clearly defined idea of what the pricing was, they got it completely wrong between each other. Jessica undersold, Sofian didn't done his own thing, and you know, we we kind of lost, but I, I kind of lost it with Jessica because throughout the show, I think between her and Sofian, Sofian really wound me up. Um he, he just was he was just so maverick and so about him. So every time you're trying to do something during the filming, mm. he'd go off, and the next thing you know, he'd be off and he's dragged the cameraman off somewhere, and you're trying to actually do something right. that matters for the right. process. He right. just wants to be about him. <laughs> so, well, yeah. It is a celebrity show at the end of the day. That's, it's that's, not that's, a celebrity that's... show. <laughs> not, it, is, it is very well designed yeah. to make sure that um, 
people come off looking the worst they can. And I'll tell you oh, why, right. and I yes, didn't realise. Yeah. Quite early on, they realised that I didn't like Sofian. We clashed, and they and they got that right. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, but also, that they realised that the weak link between us was that Jessica kept saying she wanted to be in control, but actually when it came to making decisions and being in control, that wasn't actually going to happen. Mm -hmm. she, was, she was good with ideas, but she wasn't assertive. So when, when we were working together, um, I was trying to encourage Jessica to be a little bit more assertive. I was like, if you want to be the director and shoot this video, you have to be able to control myself and Sofian. And despite, even though I'm the team leader, I'm literally saying to you, if you see something to me and you say, Paul, I want to shoot a scene this way, shoot, shoot it and be in control of that. But she would say something and then as soon as Sofian went off with the camera, she wouldn't say anything and it was starting to really annoy me that, look, I'm trying to win you're not really interested in winning. You guys are about you. I just want to win. And there were so many scenarios within it. And then in the end, um, I think I, I argued with a couple of people around just outside of the um, events. And mm. then there was some cheating and I don't really want to get into that. And so on the day of uh, when we when we go to the boardroom, he, he, he kind of says, oh, you did it wrong, blah, blah, blah. You should have done this. You should have done that. And I said, well, not really. I said, because the logical decision is you put the strongest salespeople on the sales team and the most logical strategic people on the strategy team. You know, these guys all know each other. And he was like, no, no, you don't, no, you don't. And he said something to me, and I just went, I'll take it how you want to take it. And I remember just looking up at him, and he was kind of bent over the table taking notes. And he just looked up at me, and like, <laughs> our eyes connected. And I just thought, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> Yeah, I made a mistake there. Really interesting. Quite fascinating. Let's let's talk a little bit about the financial services industry. So open banking and PDS2 has sort of brought massive innovation for to uh, fintechs and, and startups that are heavily backed by investors, especially in London. London sort of seems to be the sort of the hub of where all, all of this investment and sort of money is, is taking place at the moment. It's the financial centre of the world right now. Um, huge amount of investment going into technology businesses what opportunities does that create for agencies focusing on the financial sector and how are the best ones taking advantage so talking about bias uh, firstly um we've actually identified the opportunity to develop a fintech platform hmm. um just by virtue of being in this industry for so long, coming from a financial services background and understanding what the wants and needs of today's businesses are. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to get too far into it because I put the board together. So it's going to be a separate business from the agency um, and we've got a good board. But I think what, what really stands out of all of this is that agencies can be one of two things. They can call themselves really big thinkers and only ever think about delivering inbound or conversational or digital marketing, however you really want to say your services are, or you become an agency that becomes far more consultative. Mm -hmm. um, and then you want to be able to talk to your customers about where you see the opportunities for their business to go. And whilst we think that that's the no-no point of um, agency-client relationship, or why would I tell someone else how to grow their business better? Well, it, it, inevitably, if you do it together as a JV or you just do it together and help them grow their business, then that's another revenue stream for you because you then need to market this new thing that they're developing. So as an agency, I think being more consultative 
and being open and not worrying about whether you've given them an idea that gets them another 100 million a year or, or not. That's not your job. Your job is to either go and try and develop a platform like that yourself or you stay as an agency and you just provide the services and the insights and value to your client to show them that you do think that much more of their business rather than just as a number or a metric, which I think a lot of agencies do, you know, and that's... Now, I, I know that you may not want to go into the details of this new product, but is it a cryptocurrency-based product? Is it based on blockchain? What? So there is an element of blockchain because the platform would bring transparency to a very, very huge global market mm -hmm. where um, there isn't. And, and it's, a, it's an area where I know that the FCA are focusing on. I know that at least two MPs in Parliament have written papers on wanting to close this space up and get more transparency about what's, what activities are going on. But also, this what really, really annoys me um, is that there's a lot of boiler room companies operating in this space and they're just taking a lot of old people's money and leaving people destitute and bankrupt when they should be pensionable and retired into comfort. And, um, you know, as a person, I'm so... Um, my ethics, my moral standards, you know, all of it, I've, there's just so much about me that reflects A, in the agency, but in this platform, because I'm trying to close something out. And, and just, just to give you an idea, I'm really well connected in, in that startup, that scale up world because of the kind of nature of my work, that when I presented this idea to, um, to some really highly influential people, one person is a serious fintech investor just said i want to invest in this as soon as you get it going um and some other people were just like look the, the, these are the people we'd invest you in uh, these are the people we'd introduce you to these are the people we feel would invest in this but this is a broker that we feel would, would immediately partner with you and then you wouldn't even have to worry about going through all the regulations so you know we're quite the way along with it but it's typically me as per usual got it somewhere and it's like what where am i going the agency at the moment is flying um and so i don't really want to become one of those people that's distracted by not cementing one thing and then trying to do two three or four things if that makes sense well let's talk but, a little, little bit about the agency because you you're a multi-award winning inbound marketing shop as you said you mm -hmm. offer content and conversational marketing services uh, and inbound marketing services as well what makes you different from other inbound agencies that are out there? This is a really good question because I had a call um, with a company in Belgium two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And the client has no marketing experience, but has her, her, her industry knowledge of why she's developed her business in the way she's done effectively. All she was doing was talking to lots of inbound agencies and then couldn't couldn't work out why we're all telling her the same thing and what made us different. So, you know, we talk about personas, we talk about inbound, we talk about ROI, and it's blah, blah, blah to me. And so I literally got up two days ago and I emailed the client, or I emailed the prospect, sorry, for the right, for the right terminology, and I just said, look, I'm really disappointed with the way the call went the other day. You really don't have any idea what you're talking about because you literally are asking all the agencies the same questions and then trying to work out what makes any of them different. So I said, let me give you a piece of advice because I'm actually withdrawing from this process. You find an agency that you either like and trust 
or you choose an agency that has demonstrable experience of working in your industry with companies like yours or similar to yours. I said, and that's it. I said, in our business, done that, you know, we've gone from cosmetic dentistry to the NHS, right? Just in some some of the medical stuff that we've done. And I just said, look, at the end of the day, I'm not interested in working with people that don't want to win because I want to win. I don't need a 12 month contract. I quite happily take a three month engagement, focus on one pain point, smash that app off the table and then come back and then we can talk about it afterwards. But other than that, you're just going nowhere. Now, this woman hadn't responded to two previous emails in two weeks. Within 30 minutes of that email going out, she called me back and said, right, let's have a call next week. And I think I'm always going to be blunt, honest and transparent. And I'm going to tell people, look, I haven't got time to waste. I'm not here to pitch against other inbound agencies. There are bigger and more high profile agencies that are doing better that some of my friends own or some people that, you know, other people that I know own and they're doing really well. So I'm not gonna say that I'm any better than them because I don't know I am. Mm. But what I am is I'm really confident in me, mm. confident enough to just say, look, if you think that I'm just gonna send you a proposal that you can try and benchmark my price and services against someone else and then I'm gonna lose it. So no, I'm not. So quite often when we walk into a meeting, first thing we establish is no. <laughs> um, <laughs> first no thing we establish is no. Yeah, so no being, I don't have time to waste and you guys don't have time to waste. We need to find out quite early if this is going to be a relationship that we want to pursue. I'm not here to pitch you today and I'm not here to try and propose you. I'm not going to talk about anything strategic until we're engaged. Mm -hmm. My job here is to understand what's going on in your business, find out if what we offer actually aligns with your your need Mm. rather than just saying, oh, the, these these people have a problem with traffic or conversions. And as we're an inbound agency, we can just put some conversion metrics in sure. there. And, we're great. and sure. if that is a metric as an agency, good luck to you. I'm sure that's going to work for you. But for me, bias is is more than just an agency. It's a culture. It's, it's what we are and it's how we do things. And we don't move from our processes. And so, that brutal honesty that you just mentioned, I guess that's really attractive to some clients that have just been told yes by so many other agencies that they've spoken to. But as soon as you come into the into the building and the first thing you say out of your mouth is no, it's a bit of a, a wake-up call for them. It's that brutal honesty, and I think it's really attractive to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean... I mean not like, everyone, but no, no, to the right I mean, people. Like, you know, like we, we weren't a HubSpot partner for, for a while, Right. We, I came out of it a while back because I think that agencies that become HubSpot partners, the old kind of culture around it was that you just sell HubSpot. And, you know, we work with Marketo, with Pardo. And so You're we just didn't partner. Really, yeah. And, and, you know, we we then had a couple of opportunities. But as a business owner, you still have to look at the bottom line. And actually, you do get your revenues from partnering up with and selling the agency. And so. You know, in our first month of going back, we're we're in sales. We're a platinum partner already in terms of our sales, and that was in one month. So we know this worked, and obviously, I'm going to look through forward to my um, my payments coming out of being being able to retail that. But even though we did that, you know, my first sale was an enterprise sale, and so on and so forth. But I actually said to one of the clients, he's he's become a, trying to be a little bit of a micromanager, and it's a shame because. Um, it comes from historically working with bad agencies. And so I'm going to say there are really bad agencies out there mm-hmm. and there are really good agencies. So let's, let's not, let's not like mix mm-hmm. it up. I'm mm-hmm. very white about that. But because of 
our data driven approach. What makes them bad, by the way? What makes the bad agencies okay. bad? So let, one of the things he one of the things was one of the agencies was helping him build his lead, his leads, and he's but told him that they owned the data and he didn't. Yet he was paying them to do it. Hmm. So that's definitely a you know that's definitely like a foul. Um, in when we assessed his PPC account where he'd been with two or three agencies, the agencies weren't tidying things up, and so there were ads running that shouldn't have been running. Okay. There are so, this, this so, so just lies and deceit right, and just deceit. bad practice. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for any other agency partner listening to this podcast, he has 260 blog posts on his website, and none of them have any meta descriptions or keywords attached to them. Hmm. Just like really basic things. Hmm. There's like 24 different categories on his on his blog, and, and it, was, it was just crazy. Mm. But so two weeks ago, a week ago, um, I was kind of feeling like this. He's in my WhatsApp at seven o'clock and morning and seven at night. I said, look, this this just can't run like this. You get your content calendar. You know what your schedule of work is. That's what you get. So he messaged me back and said, well, I don't think this is working for me. Um, we need to revisit it. And I said, well, fine. You don't want to work with me. I don't want to work with you. I said, I only want to work with people that trust me. Mm-hmm. So that's the point of me using data to show you what's gone on and what's been wrong previously and not just saying this is a bad agency and that's a bad agency. It's all down to the metrics to a point where an agency that specialized in his industry that builds you know, websites, for example, he, he was already running a bad bounce rate when, before this new website went live. And since this new website went live, it had gone up to basically 78% bounce rate on his website, right? And he's getting a couple of thousand hits a month. And I was trying to, even just explaining these things, it was just, it just doesn't see the value that agencies kind of bring when, you, when, you, when you're going through that and, I, and unraveling all this stuff and not, and not understanding that, look, we, we came in and we, our understanding was this. Um, we wasn't even looking at that because you didn't ask us to. And we're just finding these problems as we're trying to go along and, mm. and do a good job. Um, which that's what frustrates me about agencies is that they just trade on lies, which makes the rest of us seem bad when a lot of us have got good integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, Same thing in, in sales as well. I mean, uh, there are different types of salespeople. There are good salespeople and there are really bad ones, but the bad ones give the good ones a um, a really bad name. And that actually brings me on to the next topic, actually talking about sales, because you did some sales training yesterday with HubSpot in, in Dublin. Yeah. Um, you're also a sales trainer as well yourself. Um, talk about the difference between traditional salesmen that are pushy and aggressive and that are selling sort of commodities and the more consultative um, sort of uh, better salespeople. What is the difference between a good salesperson and a bad salesperson? Um, I think if I summarized it, it would just be in the approach. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us, <clears throat> I'm sure most of us have, have got that that message into your LinkedIn folder, uh, into your inbox, you know, hi, I've got the best solution. Can I speak to you? You need to buy it. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that comes into my head, especially from, from the way that we work is, well, you've not tried to understand if I've actually got a problem. Mm-hmm. You've not reached out and been polite or anything like that. And these are all things that actually count in in uh, in multiples, I suppose. So mm-hmm. yes, being polite. Yes, it's the way you approach. Mm-hmm. Yes, trying to ask if I have a problem. Um, and I think, but also, salespeople forget to 
just get to the point. Like, just not not be rude and aggressive, but just say, you know, hi, I'm Paul. Um, you know, I'm from Bias. We're an agency that specialises in working with fintech companies, and we typically help companies that are suffering from poor conversions, poor traffic, or sales teams that aren't quite hitting their numbers. Hmm. So, are you are you experiencing any of this? Yes or no? And typically, I will back that up with one of our um, probably the ABM strategies. Mm-hmm. One of the we talk about and I say look and here's an ebook that kind of gives you an idea about what we do there's one here for um, buyer personas which is a more of a persona led approach and there's this which is more about your salespeople and how they should potentially go about mm-hmm. identifying good fit prospects so instead of playing a big numbers game nail down and target the companies and industries that you want and then do a little bit more research you know um, I know we all talk about ABM and I think that ABM should be the norm to a degree um, maybe not as intensively um, mindful salespeople in terms of, you know, they have probably got X number of calls a day they, they need to make. But the prep is where you get the best benefit. And so just on ABM, what do you mean when you say ABM? Because there are many different definitions. I speak to many different agencies and everyone's got a slightly different interpretation of what ABM is or what it means to them. H- how do you define it? So I define it as a company that identifies maybe 150 companies that would be an ideal fit, yeah? Mm-hmm. But in, within this, you're going to tier them. So maybe your, your top 50 are going to be the clients you really, really want. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the next ones down, and it's probably the, the bigger ticket ones are going to go into the, the A bracket. In the B bracket, there's the smaller companies that you'd want. Mm-hmm. And then in what I say that the, the last or the tertiary piece is – or are the companies that you don't care, like they would be a good fit, right? For some reason or not, they whether you get them or not, it doesn't really matter. Right. And when it comes down to honing your approach, you hone your approach with the companies that it doesn't matter with. Hmm. You never take the risk on the bigger companies, right? Because you want to make sure that you know you've got the right approach, you've got the right tech, um, and all these other things that need to, that need to come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you refine it. So then you're targeting who are the buyers, the influencers, the company size. You, you start monitoring them. You know, sales navigator. You can start tracking people. Mm-hmm. Um, Drift is you know is one of the platforms that we that we partner with. And you know you can use set up personalized bots that when a company someone or from a company comes in, they're recognised and you've got personalized um, approaches for them, personalized offers. All of the stuff that you can read on the internet really works. But it's about understanding. Not just what his company looks like, but what is it that you can help them with? Hmm. You know, what is it? Like, you can learn so much from just LinkedIn and the news. Even if you just see, you know, head of sales, if he's hiring, there's an easy in there, right? They usually put it on there. I'm Guy Blake and I'm head of sales and yep. we're hiring. Yep. So you're, you're going to have exponential growth in salespeople, which means that you're potentially going to lose track of the sales style, even mm-hmm. if you've got an internal training thing. Um, you're taking on a lot of grads and despite training, they will go off on their own. And, you know, I've got some really bad stories that I can talk to about from companies that I know. And I just feel that you can just start early. And if you get good practicing, I now teach um, ABM to to startup companies. Mm -hmm. It's not that they need to go out and start doing it holistically as we as we approach it, you know, take the top 150. But the basic premise of that. If you apply that to your LinkedIn marketing, if we just talked about LinkedIn on its own, identify the, the, the business, the tires, kind of companies, the revenue, all of these things learn before you just start reaching out randomly to people. 
you can start to understand a little bit more. And the more you understand about an industry and go industry by industry, the easier it becomes to sort of have conversations mm -hmm. and your approach becomes better. And one of the things that I say with LinkedIn is that you have to flip inbound on its head. So typically with inbound, you want someone to come to a landing page, mm -hmm. register for an ebook or something, and then get them into a nurturing thing. The reason I love Drift is because you put Drift at the front of that and Drift says, are you ready to buy now or do I need to educate you? And if they're ready to buy, you start generating revenue. Sure. And then if they're not, they do that. But, <clears throat> but with LinkedIn, if I reached out to you, Nathan, and said, oh, hi, Nathan, um, I'm an agency and I specialize in helping publication companies um, expen grow exponentially, um, would you go to this landing page and download my ebook? You'd probably say, right, I don't know you. You've just in interrupted my day and no. Right, basically. Mm -hmm. Whereas you need to give it, you need to say, right, I'm not going to gate this piece of content. And so on my outbound approach, I'm going to give them what I believe would help them. Hmm. And then I'm going to build in my, my follow up after that. And I think that that at the smaller end of the market to a fully comprehensive ABM mm -hmm. strategy is one and the same thing. And I think that should be the sales approach. So let's say that we, we have developed a relationship or we have started a conversation with a prospect, but for one reason or another, they're dragging their feet. You know, they're not returning the phone calls. There is some general interest there, but it's just taking them a long time to sort of come back to you and they're not moving down the pipeline, uh, the sales process as quickly as you'd like. What's your approach to generating urgency with those sorts of leads? So again, I think this comes back to what I talked about earlier in the process. I don't really mess around. Mm -hmm. So I, I work, I'm, go, I'm going to ask you a blatant question. Mm -hmm. Look, both of us are going to get frustrated if I'm in your inbox all the time and you're not. <laughs> so let's, let's just, let's just open this conversation up. What, what is the buying cycle? What, sure. like, if you like this and you do like it, what's going on internally? Sure. What can I do to help you with your stakeholders? What haven't we clarified and why haven't I shown you the real value of what you've mm -hmm. done? Because what it comes down to is, that you haven't showed them the value. Mm -hmm. If someone has a need, whether it's a need in three months or nine months or 12 months, whatever their cycle is, why have you not shown enough value for them even to say, well, look, we're gonna go with you, but actually we're not gonna do it for six months. Good point. Because that is what you've got, that's what you have to establish. And if yep. you're not prepared to do that, oh, no, I might lose them if I get too aggressive. Well, maybe you might just have spent the next six months trying to nurture someone that wasn't interested anyway. That's a very so good point. Just yeah. ask questions, you know? Ask a straightforward question and, and get out of there. That's, Very that's good point. That's really good point. Let's let's talk a little bit about social mobility. So so you grew up, as we said, uh, in the east end of London, where expectations for children at that time were relatively low. They probably still are now, mm -hmm. actually, to a certain extent. The expectation was get a blue collar job, have a couple of kids, settle down. Why didn't you follow that path? Um, probably because you were smart, but you you were no, sort of a genius. But uh, no, I mean, I'll be honest. Um, my parents didn't have a great relationship. So it was quite fiery at home. Um, and like most people in the East End that, that had parents in those type of relationships, um, it never left the front door. So, you know, you, even as kids, you didn't go outside and say, oh, mummy and daddy are arguing or anything like that. And you just got on with it. Um, and I think that when you when you're looking at, social mobility and sort of the things that impact you and, and why you're interested. Um, it's, it's that, that kind of relationship thing was that 
I sort of see it in my family. Like a lot of people always seem to be arguing or getting divorced. Like my grandparents, then my my parents, and then my friends' parents. And I was like, wow, I don't know if this relationship stuff's any good. So, um, and then as I got into my early twenties, a lot of my friends started going down this route of having kids, but not actually being strong in the relationship. So, you know, we'd be in the pub, for example, and you know the. The, the, the kid's mum would come in, you, you ain't come home and you haven't given me my money, blah, 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 and all this stuff. I don't like public drama. So for a, for a definite, I was like, right, I'm far too selfish at the moment to even consider getting into a relationship of this level of intensity when I'm not sure that I think relationships actually work, all this marriage stuff and all of that. And that was, that was my understanding of relationships. It was that they were tempestuous, they were volatile, um, quite often scary mm-hmm. and i think that they're not that's me from um from having wanting to have kids you know and mm-hmm. only just in a space now with my partner where you know that's, that's a conversation but um generally you know in the east end there was this upbringing where you got pregnant mm-hmm. you got flat and you were set and that was it and it didn't really there was no there was no afterthought about work and stuff like that the flat was the main thing that you wanted and I know it's a bad thing to say because it kind of plays into a typecast or a stereo stereo uh, type of people from this area, but there were so many more bright people. Mm-hmm. Like most of the traders that were in the city were either from Essex or the East End. Mm. So you, there was this vast contrast of people going to work in the post office and you know wanting the post office job because you've got a guaranteed pension or a bus driver and things like this, or just like average office worker. You know, there weren't. Like my dad was lucky. He was he was he was a he was a manager at Standard Chartered. So I suppose that. And my mum worked at Lloyd's. So I had that influence, I suppose, around banking. But that wasn't my first choice. When I was kind of coming out of school, I actually wanted to go and I think web websites were just coming in. I wanted that. I thought at that point websites are the future. Hmm. I great aunt and this is one of the things about the East End in its fabulous incestuous like way that everyone knows everyone. She she says to me, no, Paul, being my career worker, why don't you just go and do what your parents have done? Go the banking route. And I did. But luckily for me, 16 years later, I was back into uh, web design and stuff. So I finally got to where I should have been. Sure. Yeah, the whole the whole relationship thing, blue collar was never going to be for me. I, I've always wanted more, hmm. but not wanted more in terms of just ownership of things. I never, like when everyone was going to Tenerife and Ibiza and all these places, that was the last places I wanted to be. I couldn't think of anything worse than going on a holiday to meet people that you see every day. That's not a holiday, right? So, and I'm worldly and I'm, and I like to learn about culture. And yeah. when I go to different places, I behave how the locals behave. And I want to go and eat with the locals. Mm-hmm. They do and try and learn a few, few words of the language. And I've been like that since I was a child. And mm-hmm. that's probably where I was really different. Quite, quite fascinating. Paul, let's get into everyone's favourite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm excited to ask you the same ones as well towards the back end of the interview. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. I mean, that's, that's an easy one, really. I think um, the first time round 2015, um, with the agency, we we failed because we went into HubSpot. Mm-hmm. Um, we were practicing inbound. Um, wasn't even using the platform. I mean, we literally just had the platform. I don't even know why we'd even bothered, but um, we did that. And then by not staying on top of the culture of the business, by 
um, not looking out for the signs and just being money focused like most agencies can be. We just, I just made too many mistakes. Wasn't really looking at forecasting, wasn't watching the revenues. Everything was transactional and project set. And yeah, you know, that's, that's why it basically died. Um, and then I had to start again. But I think that for me has been the biggest benefit that I actually don't care. I think that I'm the type of person I don't sit and wallow in my failures mm -hmm. and I don't revel in my successes either because as soon as I'm successful, mm -hmm. I'm, how can I be more successful? It's not about, oh, look at me and I've done so well. And I'm and, I, and, and unfortunately, that's probably a byproduct of me being sort of quite intelligent as a, as a child because there was never a level that I could hit growing up where my parents or my aunts or my uncles or whoever would say, oh, yeah, you've done really well. The answer was, oh, yeah, we well, just expect that of you. Mm. So if you've never got a ceiling, it's really hard to sit and reward yourself. And so even though, you know, we've just done all of this HubSpot sales this month and we've got platinum on the sales side, we're like, wow. Um, now I'm just like, well, let me be a diamond partner and see where I go from there. And then, then what happens? And then I'm going to be stuck. And I mm. think that's what one of my old managers told me. Mm. So basically really hard to manage because you're never satisfied with the status quo. You always have to be doing something else or doing something better. Mm. He said, you just won't sit still. And that makes you a difficult person to manage, even though on the other side of that, there are ob obvious benefits. So I'm probably better off sitting there being my own person. <laughs> quite, quite fascinating. Tell us mm -hmm. about some of your early or current mentors who influenced or who is influencing your approach to growing businesses and marketing. 100%. This is probably the best decision that I ever made. Um, Michael Brunt is the, well, he's left The Economist. He was the COO of The Economist and he's now the CEO of The Times. Right. That is one of my mentors. And in the summer, when I was deliberating on what, what bias is, do I believe in it and stuff like that, he came over for dinner and we were sitting talking. And he just said, Paul, I love everything about Bias. I love the brand. I love what you stand for. I love the fact that what you've got on your website about what the business is, when you speak to you, that, that's what comes through, the honesty, the transparency, the being straight to the point and all of that. Um, but you can't grow an agency without growing people. And I think what there was was a little bit of fear about getting to maybe 20 or 30 in an agency because the last time I got to six or seven, it collapsed really quickly. And I didn't realize I hadn't lost it. Mm. Um, and that was August. Then I was talking to HubSpot. Do I want to do I do I not do I want? And then literally October, I, I signed, and then we wish we went platinum in sales in one month. So um, that that reassurance from someone whose own journey was an agency mm -hmm. that went internal into the economy, into the Economist, mm -hmm. and then became the COO. If you really want to look up to someone, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm stuck in the mindset, look up to someone who's done what you've done. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And and take on everything. And Michael's advice to me was, now go and find yourself another six mentors. I'm going to be good for this. You're going to need someone who's good for sales. You're going to need someone who's good for personal development. He said, have as many as you can, because that's what works. So, you know, one mentor isn't enough. And that's why I don't believe when people have coaches that want to be everything to them, yep. that you're letting yourself down. Because that person can't be great at everything. They can be good at one or two things and okay at other things. But who wants to pay to be okay? We want to pay to be the best we can hmm. be. 
Sounds sounds like a great a great mentor, Michael Brunt, and and a uh, potential podcast guest as well. If you can set up a an introduction, <laughs> yeah. that'll be that'll be great. Yeah, I booked him onto uh, my podcast soon, so it'd be great. I just need him to settle into his new job. He's only just moved. Fantastic. Tell us about some of your favourite books. What do you read for personal or professional development? Oh, so I'm a, I'm a I'm a big uh, Audible fan. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I'm always on the move and it, and it works for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, let me say, uh, I'm just going to open the app. Um, one of the best ones I think for an agency to, to kind of listen is a couple of hours is win without pitching. Okay. That's um, a by Blair ends. Blair ends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, close that sale by Brian Tracy, 24 right. different ways to close a deal. That's right. a really good book. Um, ego is the enemy. Uh, Ryan Holiday. Uh, yeah, um, I've read Napoleon Hill's Life Lessons. Okay. The Sales Enablement Playbook. Sales Enablement uh, Playbook. Who's that by? I've read that. Uh, Sales Enablement Playbook is by Tamara Schenk. Okay. No, sorry, by Hillman Story and Corey Bray. Okay. And Sales Enablement is by Tamara Schenk. Sure. Uh, Introducing Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Anderson. Misbehaving by Richard Thaler. Great book. Um, Key okay. Persons Influenced by Daniel Priestley. Daniel Priestley, fantastic, yeah. Uh, Entrepreneur Revolution by the same author. What's What's your all-time favourite book? Um, I think the one I go back to, if I'm honest, is um, Close That Sale, Brian Tracy. Okay, classic. And I think the reason is, is that he literally talks you through 24 different scenarios of ways mm. of closing a deal. Mm. From being on site with someone to being on the phone, the way that you should talk to it. And don't get me wrong, it's very American and a lot of it probably could needs to be adapted. Mm-hmm. But at the end of it, he sits there and just says, and if you've got one of those clients that you just know you're not going to close, just reel off all 24 and see, and just keep improving <laughs> the way that you close business. Okay. And I think from someone who's, who's as interested in sales as I am strategy, yeah. that's really worked for me. Yeah. And I think that's probably why I keep going back to it. Really interesting. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Um, I used to play football. I used to box. I did some kickboxing. Southpaw um, Orthodox. Uh, switch. Okay. Yeah, switch. Good. Um, I now haven't been doing nothing. I was doing yoga for a while. That was okay. really, really working. So right. I was doing that on a Friday. I was doing refine and realign. That's a really good good session. Okay. Um, but I just rejoined the gym and I'm starting with a PT next week. So um, uh, I'm one of those kind of people. I need four or five sessions with a PT and then I'm out and I'm okay, I'm on my way. It. It's the initial start. But swimming will play a big part in it this time around. Great. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who comes to you and wants to start an agency? So I would just say go for it. I don't think men in general are worth anything until they're like early 30s. I don't think they know what they want. I think Mm -hmm. they are quite immature. Mm -hmm. Um, And even when they think they know what they want, they kind of have a little bit of an early midlife around 30 Mm -hmm. and working it out. Mm -hmm. So I definitely did. Yeah, yeah, I did as well. You know, I think think you just got to try. Try. um, Don't be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. uh, and, And make sure that you're paying attention. You know, read the books, put the effort in find the mentors, all of this stuff is going to help you and don't make the biggest mistake, one of the biggest mistakes I did. Mm-hmm. I started, one of my friends owned a trucking company and he took me around to all these friends that own businesses and says that this guy's really good at marketing, you need to start working with him. And then he started to try to teach me about business and I got into a mindset of, well, what do you know? You 
you have a trucking business and this is digital, instead of thinking you've been doing your yeah. you've got business for 40 years, sure. four million pound property portfolio. Yeah. He knows and, a thing or two. <laughs> and you, yeah, and, and no one wants for anything in your family. Yeah. You're on the good holidays. Yeah. That was my biggest mistake was when my ego got in the right. way. Right, ego is the that enemy. Yeah, you've got to be careful. You don't trip, get in front of yourself and trip yourself up. Good point. And, and my final question, Paul, what do you know about growing an agency today that you wish you knew when you first started your career? Um, it's not about me. You can't grow an agency if it's about you. And I've, I've spoken to some, some really egotistical agency owners, you know, and I just feel that, yes, you can be competitive. Yes, you can have drive and ambition, but to grow a successful agency, mm-hmm. it can't be about you. It has to be about the team. Mm-hmm. So the team's successful, the agency's successful. And then, in, and because of that, the byproduct is you are successful as that agency owner. But when it's about you and what you want and you don't want to engage with everyone, even the new people, you, you're setting yourself up for a fail. You can't create a culture in an environment like that. Hmm. It's autocratic almost, and it can't be. Hmm. Not that it has to be fully democratic, don't get me wrong, but you need to have people feel that they can contribute from day dot and not from, oh, I have to earn my stripes, I have to be here for a year or or so on. And, you know, and you've got all these mini clicks forming. You can't have that. And so, Hmm. um, you know, my guys, they work so hard to support each other. For example, you you know, when... um, when we've got new people starting and, and they, we pair them up with someone who's just a little bit further along than them and they start to understand that when we get them to do their first pitch or their first presentation for their first campaign for the company, um, it's a failure for them if they didn't ask someone for mm-hmm. help because we don't expect you to actually know it, especially the way that we do it. So we have mm-hmm. our own practice and it's a failure of the person they're paired with if they didn't take the time to put the input in to make sure that these people could be as best as they could be because part of education is doing part of education is being shown what to do and part of education is failing Hmm. so um you have to find a balance that enables them not to just do and fail but also be shown Hmm. while they're while they're in in situ and i think that's what we do here quite quite fascinating paul thank you so much for doing this no problem thanks for having me on nothing We have been speaking with Paul Sullivan. He's currently the CEO of Bias Digital. We're not going to ask you to subscribe or give a five-star rating or share this episode with a friend because our thinking is if the content is any good, you'll willingly do that anyway. We'll leave that decision up to you. Email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.